0: podcast. I'm your host, Shadi Nabhan. I'm a hematologist and medical oncologist, and I have interest in all aspects of healthcare delivery, treatment, leadership, mentorship, and policy. I appreciate your support, and thank you for tuning in to this new episode. Today, I have the pleasure of hosting Dr. George Dawson. Dr. George Dawson is a psychiatrist an addiction psychiatrist, neuropsychiatrist, and he is really active on social media. And we're gonna learn a little bit more about him as he introduces himself. But I really brought in Dr. Dawson today to talk about mental illness and COVID-19. We talk a lot about the physical elements of COVID-19 about what we can do to minimize and mitigate the possibility of transmission and what we have to do as healthcare professionals and as people. But I really want to focus more on the mental illness aspect. The mental illness of the disease itself, but also the mental illness of the lockdown, of the isolation, of the social distancing, of not being able to be in your element with your colleagues, friends, and family We wanna talk a little bit about the mental illness of patients who are in the hospital when they are sick and they are not allowed to be visited by their family members and by their loved ones at the most vulnerable moment in their lives. And I've taped several episodes on that latter topic, but I really want to hone in more on the impact of either the disease or the policy interventions that we are doing and how it could affect mental illness of children and adults. Talking about children is very important. You know, no schools, virtual school. Is there really any element of this for mental illness that we might realize in the months to come? Before I air the episode that I taped with Dr. George Dawson on this podcast, I'd like to plug the show by asking you to find Healthcare Unfiltered on any podcast outlet that you usually use. We are available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, TuneIn, Stitcher, any podcast outlet. Subscribe to the show, give the show the number of stars you believe the show deserves, and write a brief review if you have some time. Refer a friend or a colleague to the show and suggest an episode or two that you think might be of interest to him or her. I appreciate your support. I always wanna learn what you think about the show and what we can do to make it better. You know how to reach me by direct messaging on Twitter at chadinabhan at C-H-A-D-I-N-A-B-H-A-N or by emailing me to at Nabhan O-O at Outlook.com or by visiting my website www.shadinabhan.com. Without further ado, Dr. George Dawson on the Healthcare Unfiltered Podcast. Okay. Well, it's really my pleasure to have uh, Dr. George Dawson with me on on this podcast. As I said in my introduction, I've been a big fan of, of him, and um, I tag him anytime I see something pertaining to um, psychological, psychiatric uh, illness, because I rely on, on him a lot for his expertise. Um, George, for the folks who don't know you, maybe a little bit about you in terms of what you do, where you practice, and how, is, how do you divide your practice or your day between clinical research or anything? Anything you want to tell us about you?
1: Sure. I'm currently at uh, Hazelden, which is a residential uh, alcohol and drug treatment center in Center City, Minnesota. And uh, most of my time there is spent uh, seeing patients. Uh, 100% of the patients I see have uh, either an alcohol or other substance use disorder, and I'm supposed to figure out their psychiatric comorbidity or what kind of treatment might be useful. The other part of my time there is spent doing a uh, a genomics, uh, multi-omics study actually on uh, people with severe alcohol use. It's uh, through primarily the Mayo Clinic and uh, we're about uh, one quarter of the way through that study. That's probably a multi-year study that will take about four years. We're interested in the uh, genomics involved in drug response to uh, drugs that are supposed to help people stop drinking, primarily.
0: That's amazing. I did not know you're doing the multiomics approach. That's really amazing. Is that just a Mayo specific or multi-center? Right?
1: Uh, no, this is uh, Mayo specific. Uh, and so uh, we're still, you know, actively recruiting people, and uh, progress is slow because. Uh, you know, it's very difficult to get people uh, in the study due to uh, you know, various criteria, but uh, we're plugging away on it and hopefully we'll get it done in a couple of years.
0: That's great. I'll be looking forward to reading more about that.
1: So George, I, I brought you
0: on the show and I'm glad that you, you have the time um, to talk a little bit about mental illness, of uh, what we all have been going through. Uh, over the past year. For context, we are taping this episode on December 29th, a couple of days before the end of 2020. And I want to talk about the mental illness of the disease, the mental illness of the intervention, the trade-offs, what can be done about this, uh, adults, kids, all of these things. So let's start maybe by the disease itself and the pandemic itself. Um, How much of the Mental well, first of all, what type of mental illness or mental health problems have you noticed or observed over the past year that maybe were not high in prevalence that you can attribute that they are happening because of COVID 19? How do we know what we are seeing is because of COVID 19?
1: That's a tough question to answer. Uh, I will say that uh, in the population I deal with, you know, they're very dependent on uh, recovery groups. Uh, and uh, 12-step recovery like, for example, Narcotics Anonymous or Alcoholics Anonymous. And uh, there was a big problem with changing to virtual groups from in-person groups. Uh, For example, if a person goes to uh, an AA meeting, they have a sponsor at that meeting, and uh, they find that it's very useful for them to help them stay sober, uh, suddenly you're switching to a virtual group where everybody's on Zoom, where there's a time delay where you don't have that personal contact uh, before or after the meeting. And uh, that really alienated a lot of people. And A lot of people stopped going to meetings. And then, of course, I would see them uh, in my clinical position uh, after they relapsed. And uh, so I was seeing a lot of people who had a very difficult time with staying sober due to the pandemic and the pandemic uh, restrictions. Uh, Another interesting group is the group of people who had to suddenly start Uh, working from home, you know, because uh, if you do have an alcohol or drug problem and you're working from home, that I think puts you at much higher risk for relapse. Uh, And so those people were having a difficult time of it as well. And finally, you know, when I typically ask people, uh, what's the main factor that led to their relapse to alcohol or drug use? uh, The number one thing on the list is boredom. And uh, it's very boring to uh, stay home. Uh, to not have any social contact, not be able to go to the gym, to not be able to go out and eat, and uh, boredom is a significant factor. So all all three of those areas are very important for people with substance use problems. In terms of depression and anxiety, you would see similar things because, uh, you know, interpersonal stress and, uh, you know, stress at work, for example, financial stress, they're all things that impinge on people with various forms of depression and anxiety. So the depression and anxiety was typically a lot worse.
0: Yeah. And I think it's a little bit of a mixture between the illness and the intervention of the illness, right? Because, I mean, you know, um, I guess we don't know yet if there's any effect of COVID-19 as a virus on the central nervous system, because we're talking about the interventions that we did, the social isolation, the inability to do certain things, right? Are there any data, just to get this out of the way, are you aware of any data that COVID-19 has any impact on the central nervous system to a degree that might indirectly affect mental health? Is there no data on, I don't know.
1: Uh, Yeah, I think there's been some uh, recent data. For example, uh, you know, in the last couple of days, there have been uh, reports of people who developed psychosis with no previous uh, psychiatric history. Related to uh, a COVID uh, infection, and uh, that would make sense to me because you know most psychiatrists have treated in their practice people with encephalitis who developed uh, sort of a permanent psychosis or paranoid state after the encephalitis had resolved. So uh, it's not surprising that a you know a, a small number of people perhaps uh, develop central nervous system complications. And of course, the main some of the main symptoms of uh, COVID uh, like the uh, loss of uh, a smell a loss of taste, you know, it would suggest that uh, you know if cranial nerves are involved. It's just kind of a short distance to the brain from uh, cranial nerve dysfunction if uh virus is affecting the cranial nerves.
0: So that that takes us to the to the intervention, and um, and it's it's a tough one because obviously the intervention has been, like you said, social distancing, social isolation, live a virtual life. Um, Uh, lockdown or semi-lockdown not it, it was never really complete lockdown how much like how can we how can we tell if our intervention is adding so much to it where it becomes worse than the disease there's a lot of contention between both camps because the Folks that are anti-lockdown, they will say, well, the lockdown is going to cause more mental illness, alcoholism, depression, anxiety, suicide, that is going to be worse than the actual virus itself. And the folks who are um, pro-lockdown, they say you can't really, so there's this two camps as as you saw, how do do you approach this?
1: Uh, Well, I mean, that's a good question. I think there's no doubt that... uh, uh, the virus has created a tremendous economic strain on people you know for example the, the two businesses that come to mind are the uh, restaurant business and uh, the airline business and uh, those a lot of those employees are under a lot of stress financial stress uh, it's caused a lot of uh, mortgage defaults you know so the financial stressors are, are very real for you know millions of people and uh, you know the paradigm for uh, economics, uh, causing, uh, you know, increased suicides, increased use of drugs and alcohol is the, uh, you know, deaths of, deaths of despair concept that came out a few years ago, uh, suggesting that economic influences can lead to some of this, uh, morbidity mortality. But, you know, uh, if you do a search right now, all the data seems to be fairly preliminary. You know, uh, it's very difficult to say exactly what the toll will be. Most experts are estimating it based on what happened in previous pandemics. You know, for example, in the 1918 pandemic, uh, I think there were uh, two waves, initially 1918 to spring of 1919, and then 1919 to spring of 1920. And at least some studies suggest that the first wave, there was not uh, a lot of excess suicides, just looking at the suicide rate. But in the second wave, there was. And, uh, you know, so there's not, as far as I can tell, there weren't a lot of good explanations between wave one and wave two, uh, except, you know, per- perhaps the idea that people thought they'd gotten through it and they wouldn't have to go through another uh, uh, period of isolation and, uh, you know, all the, all the precautions they were using back then. But, it, you know, it's very difficult to say what, uh, what's going to happen for, for certain Uh, you know, until we have a chance to analyze the data. And it's really obscured, I think, you know, you hit the nail on the head. It's really obscured by all the uh, uh, politicization of of the pandemic. And, uh, you know, when you have people uh, actively fighting over whether you should uh, use some of these precautions or not, as simple as a mask, you know, it makes it difficult to say where the stressor is coming from. Are you stressed because you're using a mask or are you stressed because you're not Using a mask, and how do you measure that in a subsequent study? You know.
0: So, um, but as as a psychiatrist, what are the, um, what do you fear? Okay, well, let me back up. As a non-psychiatrist, I think of depression, anxiety, alcoholism, and suicide. I guess Um, these are the things that come to my mind as as a non-expert psychiatrist. As the expert psychiatrist, when you fast forward, are these the four diseases you are thinking about? Are there other possible mental illnesses that you are on the watch for to see if their prevalence uh, changes?
1: Yeah, the biggest group I'm worried about are the people with severe chronic mental illnesses because they're the people who typically have rationed services. You know, Very few of them get the level of service that they need to stay, to stay stable. And uh, they're the people, for example, uh, during the uh, Hurricane Katrina down in New Orleans, uh, they're the people who ran out of medications and uh, ended up in very, very rough shape. So uh, I'm kind of concerned that uh, this group is gonna be under a lot of strain. They won't have uh, the contact with minimal services that most of them have. And uh, they're the people who are most likely to have, you know, severe exacerbations of mental illness like bipolar disorder or exacerbations of schizophrenia without uh, adequate treatment. The, the second group I am concerned about is the group uh, involved with uh, increasing alcohol and uh, and drug use over the last twenty years. Uh, you know, I think there's no doubt that uh, uh, the use is increasing. That the the drug using landscape and the alcohol landscape is changing. Uh, I think culturally, uh, you know, we see a lot of uh, Promotion of initially cannabis in order to get it legalized, but now uh, people seem to be pr- promoting psychedelics. Uh, you know, I just got an email yesterday saying, uh, you know, send a check and uh, be a psychedelic advocate. And uh, so I think uh, increasingly the population is getting the message that, you know, these drugs that we once considered to be, you know, kind of bad for you, uh, even if you worried about whether they were illegal or not. Uh, are now not only acceptable, but they may be a panacea, and they may actually help you cure your your day- to- day problems. Like, for example, you know, uh, even on Twitter, people are talking about microdosing LSD or microdosing psychedelics for basically dealing with day-to-day depression and anxiety. Uh, so I think the the permissiveness uh, you know in our society has gone way up. and, and I think the threshold is lower for using. Uh, than it used to be, you know, it's, it's similar to the environment, you know, back in the 60s when I was in college, you know, and, uh, you know, you had people who were revolting against, uh, you know, the, uh, the World War II generation, and uh, there was a new level of drug permissiveness, of course, uh, cannabis and LSD were big in those days, including amphetamines, it was the onset of the first amphetamine epidemic. And uh, now uh, we have some researchers who are demonstrating that there's actually a triple epidemic of drugs that's been in effect since about the year 2000, you know, not just uh, opioids and high-potency opioids like fentanyl, carfentanyl, but also uh, uh, stimulants, uh, you know, uh, with another amphetamine uh, epidemic superimposed on those, on the opioids. So how much
0: did you write? How much is the check that you wrote for? <laughs> <laughs>
1: They didn't get my money. I'll say on
0: <laughs> that. So, Julia, uh, I think one of the things that confused me is that, uh, amongst many things, I mean, my listeners know I get confused all the time. But um, let's fast forward. Let's say we're in the year twenty in the year twenty twenty two.
1: Okay.
0: And you're looking at stats and you're reviewing the unfortunate rates of depression or suicide or alcoholism. How, how do you know? How can you link that to COVID-19 policies or the lockdown um, and and filter additional elements and additional factors that may contribute to this? Because I think, right? I think you get my question. I'm trying to understand if I see a rates that increase in 2022, because I may not see the significance of this today, but still in two years, how do I go back and link it to what we did this year? versus something else that's going on in the world?
1: Uh, well, I think there are you know, some converging lines of data, like for example, uh, uh, taking a look at the previous pandemics and what the, uh, the associated rates of those problems were following those pandemics. There's some good recent data over the past you know, 10 or 20 years looking at uh, you know, influenza epidemics. Of course, they're not on the same scale The other one is, you know, taking a very good look, uh, a very detailed analysis. For example, I looked at the deaths of despair concept being analyzed uh, by an economist, actually. And, uh, you know, the original deaths deaths of despair concept had to do with economic deprivation, low income, and how that influenced all all of those areas across alcohol use, uh, deaths due to cirrhosis, depression and suicide, and other drug use. Uh, what he did was he looked at uh, detailed multivariate analysis and showed that even in the counties where the uh, income dropped and they were under more economic stress and the suicide rate went up, uh, only 10% of the suicide rate could be attributable to the economic factor. He thought that the vast majority of the suicide rate was due to the change in the drug landscape for the deaths of despair. You know, So I think that's something that... Uh, You know, you can do detailed analysis like that. Of course, they're always debatable. Somebody will always come around and reanalyze it. Somebody will always do a meta-analysis to show that you're wrong. But, you know, you have to do these detailed analyses to kind of get a feel for what's going on. And, you know, if we're looking in in 2000, you know, two, three years from now, the other thing that always seems to bother me is that uh, nobody ever does anything about this, whether we're in a pandemic or not. You know, for the past 30 years, we've had mental health and substance use resources rationed successfully every year, successively uh, to the point where there are hardly any services now. You know, people who need severe treatment treatment for severe problems don't have access to it, uh, whether they have mental health problems or not. You know, we we have uh, the three largest psychiatric hospitals in the United States are county jails, you know, and they have been for the past decade, you know, because uh, psychiatric beds have been basically put out of business by managed care companies. You know, so when we think about interventions, we have to also think that the entire infrastructure for psychiatry and uh, substance use treatment has deteriorated significantly over the past 30 years. You know, so it's not like uh, we're doing anything to help these people actively right now. You know, there are, I, I have colleagues right now that are working on inpatient units. They're wearing the full PPE. Some of them have just been vaccinated and they've been doing basically the same job they've been doing even since pre-pandemic. But, you know, it, we have to acknowledge the fact that it, was, it wasn't enough back then and it can't be enough now, especially if we anticipate more morbidity, you know.
0: I, I wanted to ask a, a couple of things. One, a lot of folks are worried about that the mental Health and the impact of the COVID-19 policies and intervention interventions might be worse than the virus itself. So the, there's a there's a right. I mean, right now, as we are taping, I believe we are at 330,000 unfortunate deaths from COVID-19 um, as a society, as a nation, and it's still it's still climbing. And I don't know what will end up. We obviously every single life matters. The concern is that as a society or as a nation, when we look at the interventions and the policies, we may end up losing even more than we would have lost um, if we didn't really do the interventions and the lockdown. From what you mentioned, the economic loss, the other aspects, and so forth. Is there, I mean, is there? Is there any magic answer to this, or we just do what we know today and hope for the best? I mean, is there any formula that we can usually balance the trade-offs in a way that we don't lose future lives to the interventions, to the mental illness and mental health problems?
1: I think the public health messaging has to be that, you know, the virus is not only bad for your pandemic, viruses are not only bad for your physical health, they're bad for your mental health. And I think, you know, to answer your question, I think the only thing you can go on at this point is precedent. And uh, I think if you do go back and look at the 1918 pandemic, which was significantly worse in terms of, uh, you know, loss of life, and not just the United States, but globally, uh, and it was also uh, overlapped with the uh, pandemic of uh, encephalitis lethargica that went on for another 10 years, uh, I think the, uh, probably the total loss of life due to these deaths of despair was probably uh, not as great, although there were, other, there were other occurrences that occurred in that time frame, like, for example, the stock market crash in uh, 1929, the uh, stock market panic in 1909. You know, some of those things were, were viewed as significant uh, in terms of blips of uh, suicide mortality as well. But yeah, the only thing—that's the only way I can think of, of analyzing it. Uh, I know there have been some uh, uh, some epidemiologists that have taken a different uh, different view, but uh, you know, and I think we also have to compare ourselves to company to countries that were much more successful in terms of containing the virus and had lower mortality rates than the United States. You know, when we look at our mortality rate; it's kind of a At a very high rate compared to most countries, Uh, you know, we have to ask ourselves uh, what sort of messaging does it take uh, to uh, prevent that from happening in the future?
0: Yeah, I mean, and I think obviously the worry is that usually, you know, today this is what's going on, but then in two years, you you always capture the fruits of what we do not immediately; it's later on. So I think it's only time will tell. How about uh, the impact of the pandemic or the interventions on, on healthcare professionals like yourself, like myself, like other physicians, nurses, respiratory therapists, folks that work in the hospital, that cohort of uh, um, workforce, um, any data or any concerns about what they might go through mental health-wise?
1: I think the burnout data uh, collected so far shows that burnout is much higher. I mean, it was it was fairly high at baseline, but obviously when you're uh, when you're literally swamped and uh, people are dying at very high rates, uh, you know, uh, burnout is going to be much uh, much worse. Uh, there have been some uh, administrative factors, like for example, there have been some stories out there about how people had inadequate PPE and they were expected to do the job, uh, which uh, also probably enhances burnout. Uh, So I think burnout and depression, there's a very fine line for me between burnout and depression and healthcare providers. Uh, I know a lot of uh, psychiatric uh, state societies have been offering uh, sort of triage services to healthcare providers free of cost, Uh, but this is where our system could uh, could be a lot better. You know, I think that, uh, you know, one of the main concerns uh, I think that a lot of these local societies have is the mal- whole malpractice issue. You know, uh, if you're consulting, let's say, with an ER physician informally on what they're going through in terms of job-related stress and whether or not they're suicidal, you know, uh, I think a lot of the uh, a lot of these systems are designed to keep it at sort of an informal non-patient level. But I think that, uh, you know, if we're really concerned about supporting uh, healthcare workers in situations like this, we should have a system where we can actually provide active treatment to these healthcare providers instead of sort of informal consultation and triage, you know. And uh, that's one thing that's lacking, you know. I'd be quite happy to do it, you know, free of charge, you know, X number of hours a week, if there was a system that allowed me to do that, but you know, uh, currently there isn't, and I think our medical legal problems, you know, get in the way here.
0: Yeah, and I mean, it's possible. I heard there are some physicians who are near retirement age who just simply retired, and they said, you know, they don't want to deal with. Um, I mean, that, exactly. Yeah. I'm not sure. I know the percent, like the stats, but I, but I did hear that. Let's uh, maybe we can uh, just. Uh, um, pivot a little bit between adults and children. And I know that there are two separate specialties almost. I'm, I'm not really sure uh, how granular the, the specialties are in terms of uh, psychiatrists that see children or teenagers. But uh, let's talk a little bit about schools, school closure, the impact on, of, on, on children and from mental health perspective. Where, where, what are your thoughts there? Where do you stand there? And maybe what does the data tell us? there
1: uh no data that i'm aware of but you know i think uh uh what you mentioned earlier that uh, there's great variation in the models that school districts are using you know there are some school districts where children are showing up they're masked every day and they're they're live in classroom every day there are some that have hybrid models and there's some that are just staying at home you know oftentimes those jurisdictions have uh sort of a cutoff in terms of percentage of positive tests that will cause them to, uh, to go just to the, uh, online model. Uh, but, you know, I think everyone's in agreement that, uh, you know, children need a certain degree of socialization. Uh, socialization is an important factor, uh, in primary school, middle school and high school. And, uh, all of this kind of minimizes that, uh, a lot of uh, the feedback I'm getting from, uh, from colleagues are that, uh, they don't think the level of teaching uh, is as intense. Uh, they think it's you know harder to maintain engagement with students uh, online as opposed to in person. And uh, there's none of that personalized uh, teaching effect. So uh, I think uh, without a doubt, it's a much more difficult uh, process to go through. You know, on the other hand, I think uh, a lot of children are very resilient and I would expect them to bounce back Quite, uh, quite readily once, uh, once the pandemic is behind us, hopefully uh, in the next uh, you know, four to six months. Uh, and uh, you know, the long-term outcome I think is uh, hard to predict, but it would not surprise me if uh, this was just sort of a blip on the radar for kids and a lot of them got through it okay. I think you know, it's just like in the case of adults, I think the more vulnerable children will probably uh, be the people who are impacted the most.
0: So uh, from a children' perspective, um, uh, the type of mental illnesses that you worry about for children and teenagers because of the pandemic or the lockdown, um, are they different than adults? Are there specific elements that you, uh, or ailments that you worry about more in children?
1: Well, the biggest one I would worry about is uh, so-called trait anxiety. You know, In other words, uh, the uh, children who are born with sort of an anxious temperament. And, uh, you know, they find it uh, difficult uh, to go to school. You know, uh, school avoidance, for example, is one of the features of uh, trait anxiety for kids. And uh, I often see adults who tell me that they can recall being anxious uh, all the way back to kindergarten or elementary school. You know, and they, they detail how it affected them uh, in the history I get from them, uh, straight through school, college, and even uh, adulthood, and uh, a lot of those folks will also have social anxiety disorder, difficulty with socialization, and uh, that also is problematic because, of course, you know the best approach to socialization, if you have social anxiety disorder, is actual exposure, getting out there, and exposing yourself in social situations, and noticing that uh, your anxiety is less less, and some of the worries you have about socializing are are less.
0: So. What are your thoughts on school closure? And it may not be a fair question because we're not going to go into the details of data. I don't know how much data there is, but I mean there are many folks that would say school closure was a mistake. That you know you should really open the schools. Uh, to your point, you know, with proper masking and so forth, but that the impact of letting folks with you know not go to school is huge. Especially to your earlier point, there's so much. Um, like differences, so many differences between various districts. I mean, many private schools actually are completely open. Mm-hmm. Uh, many public schools are either closed except for virtual or have a very uh, weird hybrid model. So, you know, there's no unified approach to schools. And I don't know, I mean, from, from where you sit, do you think we got the schools part wrong as, as a nation or do you or you, you don't feel comfortable commenting on that?
1: Uh, I think it's an ideal question to study, you know, because you mentioned the heterogeneity to the approach, you know, I think, uh, you know, if I, if I was running the CDC, for example, I would send epidemiologists out to all three of those settings you just mentioned and look for disease transmission because, you know, disease transmission is still debatable, uh, you know, in terms of, uh, asymptomatic disease transmission, disease transmission from children, uh, etc., And, uh, I would, uh, to try to take a look at the data as far as I know nobody has been
0: you know yeah I mean I think the you know I, I think the I guess what we know is that the kids usually when they get sick they their illness is not as severe and I, I believe their transmission to others is lower than others uh, than, than adults but I, I can't I'll have to study the data myself I just um, I'm very very worried about the kids' uh, mental illness and how that's going to happen as they get older in the next couple of years. I don't know. Hopefully not, but I don't know. Am I, uh, am I too worried? Should I calm down?
1: Well, I think, you know, the the other kids that are probably even more vulnerable are the kids who are uh, have special resources because they, they're designated as having emotional disturbances or learning disorders, and they need special assistance. And uh, I haven't seen hardly anything. I haven't seen anything actually written about that, you know, how are these uh, kids who are already designated as being vulnerable being helped through this pandemic? you know I haven't seen anything written about that at all
0: so we so what what other issues when it comes to mental health that you know from where you sit that you really feel I mean any like what what in the next year or so, anything that we can do right now, are we just gonna you know Deal with it as it comes. Is there anything that we can do in December 2020, January 2021 that might mitigate any of what might happen over the next 12 to 24 months?
1: Well, I think the big revolution here has been, uh, you know, telemedicine, telepsychiatry. You know, I think that uh, that really has opened things up. Because when you think about it, uh, all the clinics uh, basically closed sometime in early summer, and uh, They were, you know, and then it took a while to get things up and running. I know I've been online seeing patients at Hazelden since March. You know, for the past nine months, I've been online, only seeing patients online. And uh, I can attest to the fact that, uh, you know, the exchange is good. The information exchange is good. Patient satisfaction is the same. And uh, I'm able to do my work uh, at about an equivalent level. You know, about the only thing I can't do is you know, measure vital signs, do brief physical exams, you know, that I would do in the office. Uh, but I do have a team of internists who are still working there on site who can, uh, who can do a lot of those things. That's been the eye opener, I think. And that's one thing that I think uh, we need to keep going uh, moving forward. We need to have uh, this easy access uh, to televisits for people with significant mental health problems and, uh, and addictions.
0: Could the delay in diagnosis of certain diseases, because of postponing everything elective, you can't get in to see anybody that you want, could that lead indirectly to additional mental illness problems?
1: I think it could. I think you, you, know, you certainly don't want to avoid going in to see someone if you're having suicidal thoughts or you're having aggressive thoughts or homicidal thinking. You know, I think we don't do a good job of uh, encouraging those people to come in sooner. Same thing is true, of, you know. Substance use problems, you know, the sooner those are addressed, uh, generally, the better. I, I think I'm at an advantage because, you know, a lot of the people I see have uh, clearly defined substance use problems. That's why they present for treatment. But if I was an internist or a family physician, uh, you know, doing a telepsychiatry or a telehealth visit with a, with a person, it might be a lot more difficult to diagnose. You know, uh, just as it is. How,
0: how about diagnosing something that is? Cancer or heart disease or something that is not necessarily mental illness, and then you get diagnosed later on it may have or may not some mental illness implications
1: yeah, even common example uh screening colonoscopies you know uh, I got an email from my health plan saying, you know you're due for a screening colonoscopy, and we encourage you not to put it off due to the pandemic you know uh well, the question is you know. What do you do in a situation like that, you know? Uh, and uh, you're right. What did you, you do? I put it off for now. <laughs> but, but you know, you're right. If I come down, if I'm diagnosed with colon cancer in a year or two, it's, you know, it's going to d- definitely have an impact on my uh, mental health and lifestyle, you know? Um, so I think you're right. Uh, you know, the pandemic to some degree, degree is going to encourage putting off elective uh, procedures, you know?
0: Yeah, I mean, I do have concerns about that, but um, I guess we'll we'll see. George, any other things we should talk about? I wanna, you know, I wanna dedicate this episode to everything pertaining to mental health and the pandemic. Um, I haven't done that topic since uh, we started, and I wanna make sure I cover everything. But uh, I may have missed certain elements that I should have asked you about. Anything that you want that you can help with that I may have missed?
1: Yeah, I think the uh, the general approach that I see a lot of people taking uh a lot of uh healthcare uh groups taking is to talk to people in general about what to do to decrease stress during the pandemic. The thing I think that's not recognized is your personality uh during a pandemic. You know, uh the old extrovert introvert type personality. You know, I think uh I had a blog post on this way back before I was diagnosed with uh, COVID myself, pointing out that my wife is very extroverted. She goes everywhere. She goes to the gym every day. She's out socializing every day. Whereas I, on the other hand, am introverted. I'm quite happy to stay home every day. The gym work I do is in my basement. I have my own gym in the basement. And uh, the only people I see are the people I work with primarily. So it's much easier for me to, you know, survive a pandemic than it is for her. Even during the early days when the mortality rate was low, very difficult to, to encourage her to stay home and not go out and socialize with all these people, you know. So I think, you know, the, one of the big things in the pandemic is recognizing what your personality style is like and how stressful it's going to be for you to follow the, uh, you know, the procedures, you know, the masking procedures, the social distancing, and avoiding crowds in the, in places, and that also comes down to a number of other uh, you know scenarios. Like for example, how does stress affect you at home? You know, if you're stressed at home, uh, you have insomnia. You know, uh, how do you deal with insomnia? You know, from this, how do you deal with excessive worry from this? You know, so I think the basic uh, lifestyle uh, at home is very important. Maintain regular food intake, regular protein intake, maintain your typical sleep cycle. Make sure you're exercising, uh, you know, in a healthy way every day, and uh, try to analyze your your worries and how to overcome those worries. And uh, there are a number of ways to go about that. the number a good book, number of good books out there. Uh, certainly, talking with people, you know, socializing with people online if you can, if you if you need that, is very important. So I think reducing stress in the context of a pandemic is something that. Uh, you know, people need to know a lot more about as well. The other, the other factor there that I think increases stress is all the misinformation, you know, like uh, you and I are both on Twitter and uh, the misinformation about the pandemic and the arguing that goes on about that and the political polarization about the pandemic is uh, quite unbelievable compared to other countries. Uh, and uh, you can routinely see Videos of people being stressed out to the point that they're becoming uh, aggressive uh related to beliefs about masking uh and uh social distancing and uh you know I don't know what to do about that exactly other than you know consistent messaging from the from the uh from the initial onset of the pandemic
0: yeah certainly interesting times aren't there i mean just interesting times we're living in well um I hope that, uh, you know, I mean, I think we probably hit the um, high notes in terms of some interventions, um, because I think, you know, the goal is that we know what the problem is and what listeners want to know. Is there anything they can do Mm -hmm. to minimize this? And I think uh, that was a nice way to summarize into some of the elements that they can actually do that might hopefully diminish the possibility of developing mental illness. We are all prone To these issues. And um, uh, I certainly don't sleep well to start with. So uh, I'll tag you on all of my tweets at 2am in the morning. Okay.
1: I'm usually up myself.
0: (laughs) George, thank you so much. I really appreciate you taking the time. Um, Happy New Year. Hopefully uh, 2021 will be better for all of us. And I appreciate your time.
1: You're welcome. Thank you, Charlie.
0: Thank you guys for listening. Thank you for taking the time and listening to this important episode. I thought this was great that we discussed mental illness, mental health that might really come in from COVID-19 pandemic or the interventions. I don't believe there are easy answers. I think it is rather a difficult topic to discuss and to decipher, but Uh, we cannot ignore that. I think um, these are really, really uh, important things. You know, the the one thing I would say is that I'm not really sure that we will be able to to know uh, the mental illness or mental health impact of what we are dealing with anytime soon. I think some of these mental illnesses that George discussed might take. A year or two or three until they develop and evolve, especially in children and young kids. And um, so we just need to be on the lookout. We need to really make sure we provide the proper atmosphere, environment and really intervene when needed as much as possible. Let me know what you think about this episode and other episodes. Uh, um, make sure you check out this um, the prior podcast episodes on all podcast outlets, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, TuneIn, SoundCloud, Stitcher, uh, wherever you consume your podcast. And please refer a colleague or a friend, write a review, and subscribe to the show. Let me know what you think of this episode and other ones by emailing me at oo at Outlook.com, by visiting the website at www.chadinabhan.com, or by direct messaging me on Twitter at, at Chadinabhan, at C H A D I N A B H A N. And, uh, you know, before I let you go, I'm going to leave you with a saying from Buddha holding on to anger is like grasping a hot coal with the intent of throwing it at someone else. You are the one who gets burned. Until next time, take care.